Um, so hi, uh, you're listening to Beyond the Grave. This is a podcast that explores cemeteries and the like to tell the stories of those who lie within or those who have been commemorated in some way. Whether a final resting place is in a graveyard, at the bottom of the ocean, or the only marker to prove an existence is a simple memorial, there's always a story behind it from beyond the grave. Uh, I'm your host, Jamie Johnson. I'm not an expert on the subjects we will discuss. I simply have an interest in them. Uh, This week is episode six, uh, so we're going to be talking about our dearly departed. Since we will be discussing death and the topics surrounding it, some listener discretion is advised. The purpose of this podcast is to educate, so if you find the subject matter offensive or morbid, then this is not the podcast for you. There will also be some coarse language. My co-host for this episode is Martina Emmert, again returning. Welcome, thank you. I'm having such a great time. Yay, I'm so happy. (laughs) Um, Are you learning lots? Absolutely. Makes me want to go to Connecticut. I want to go to Connecticut again. That was was a good trip. That was a long time ago. So our dearly departed for the Grove Street Cemetery, also known as the New Haven City Burial Ground in New Haven, Connecticut, is going to be started off by Martina. Oh, that's so wonderful. Um, So let's talk about Mary A. Goodman. She was born around 1804 into slavery. slavery. She had no family and inherited some property through marriage. She was a businesswoman running her own successful laundry service business in New Haven. She attended College Street Church, and when she died on January 26, 1872, She had approximately 5,000 in savings, which by today's dollars would be about $98,000. So that's pretty significant. From the YaleDailyNews.com, Schiff states, after the Civil War, she didn't feel like things were progressing fast enough. And she thought that if black ministers were educated at the Yale Divinity School, then they could inspire young boys to go to college. She left her life savings to Yale to help with scholarships and recruitment of black students. Her scholarship was used to recruit the first black theology students to Yale's Divinity School. She was 68 when she passed away. She is one she is buried in one of the Yale lots to honor her and her scholarship and her scholarship is still in use today. She was the first person of color to donate to Yale. Okay. Uh, Next, we have Alice Mabel Bacon. She was born February 26, 1858, to parents Reverend Leonard Bacon and Catherine Elizabeth Terry. She was the youngest of three girls. Mori Aranori, a Japanese envoy, selected their home as a residence for Japanese students, women students, to be educated as part of the Iwakura mission, which is or was a Japanese diplomatic voyage. Uh, There were other links to other pages on Mori Aranori and the Iwakura mission, so there's more information on those things if anyone wants to go look them up. Alice was 14 years old at this time. One of the students, Yamakawa Sudamatsu, who was 12, uh, was so close in age to her that their relationship actually grew to be more like a sisterhood than a friendship. Alice graduated high school, but she was not able to go straight to university. Eventually, she earned a Bachelor of Arts from Harvard in 1881. She became a teacher two years later at the Hampton Institute, 
1888, she was invent- invited by Yamakawa Sudematsu to go to Japan to teach English, and she did that for a year. Upon her return, she learned one of her students was denied entry to nursing school because of her race. So Alice strove to have a hospital established at the Institute. Dixie Hospital was the result, and it opened in May of 1891. She did go back to Japan in 1900, and she stayed there for two years. She helped to establish the women's preparatory school there, and that eventually became the Suda College, which is one of the most prestigious women's colleges. During her time there, the only compensation she asked for was to cover her housing. The rest of the work she did, she did for free. So her time in Japan afforded her many experiences, which she published into three books and many essays. She adopted two children, staying single all her life. Uh, The next person is Mary C. Wright, and she was born on September 25th, 1917 as Mary Oliver Clawbaugh in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. She graduated from Vassar College in 1938. That's in Poughkeepsie, New York. She moved on to study European history in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but a man by the name of John K. Fairbank, a well-known Chinese historian, lured her away to study Chinese history. She She became a Sinologist, who is someone who studies China through Chinese thought, language, literature, culture, and history. She focused her study on the Xin Dynasty. Fairbank first described her in terms of appearance and girlish demeanor, smooth, beautiful, shy, soft accent. But after working with her, he described her as follows. At second glance, not so smooth as sharp. Asuma from Vassard, tremendously quick and a ferocious worker, racing to keep up with her imagination. Only a year later in 1939, she earned a Master of Arts. A year later, she married author F. White, who was also studying Chinese history, and the two of them moved to Japan and then to Beijing to work on their PhDs as world, as, work on their PhDs. As World War II was in full swing, The two were apprehended and interned at a Japanese-run camp in China. She learned to speak Russian while working in the laundry at the camp. In 1945, they were freed by American paratroopers. They stayed in China for two more years. When they returned to the States, they were both awarded positions at Stanford University in California. Mary earned her PhD in 1951. She was the first woman to do to accomplish a couple of things at Yale. She gained tenure at the Faculty of Arts and Science, and she was appointed full professor. They both went to Yale to work as associate professors in 1959. She passed away of lung cancer on June 18, 1970. Okay, so next we're going to do Delia Bacon, and she was Alice's aunt. Alice, I just talked about. So born February 2nd, 1811, in a frontier log cabin in Talmadge, Ohio. When the pursuit of a vision her father had did not work out, the family moved to New England, where her father was originally from. He soon died, and the family had little money for education for the children. Her oldest brother only received a tertiary education from Yale, whatever that means. Do you know what that means? Mm-mm. Me neither. Okay, I didn't look it up. She went to school formally until she was 14, 
She continued her education and taught in schools in a few different states. She actually developed her own methods for teaching. Her classes were on badass women in history, much like the badass women in history we're talking about. In 1882, she wrote a book anonymously about life in colonial times called Tales of the Puritans. She was only 20 at the time she wrote the book. A year later, she won a prize for a short story writing competition, beating out none other than fucking Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> yep. She moved to New York in 1836, and she fell in love with the theater scene. So, like, who can blame her? I can't. I work in theater, so I can't blame her for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Biased here. She befriended an actress and convinced her to star in a play that she was writing. But for whatever reason, her brother was being criticized. Um, so she had to publish this play anonymously in 1839. It did eventually get performed, but it was considered a flop. Um, however, our friend Edgar Allan Poe, he actually liked the play and he wrote it a nice review on it. In 1846, she meets a man, Alexander McWhorter. Her brother Leonard decides to be a dick and brought Alexander to ecclesiastical trial for dishonorable conduct, whatever that meant. Thanks. Um, yeah, but that's prob- <laughs> probably probably having sex with my sister. Um, so she was happy in Alexander's company, but her dick brother and the people of town made her feel like shit. So she left town and went back to Ohio. Uh, does this remind you of anything? No. It will later. You'll, okay. you'll recognize it. Yeah. Catherine Beecher wrote a book defending her. Uh, She was also a badass. She led a movement to oppose the Indian Removal Bill, and she was sister to Harriet Beecher Stowe, the writer of Uncle Tom's Cabin, an abolitionist. In 1845, she began research for a project of which she is most famous for. In 1853, when she revealed her topic to Scottish philosopher and writer Thomas Carlyle, he shrieked loudly. Her book was published in 1857, and it was called The Philosophy of the Plays of Shakespeare Unfolded. Uh, This caused quite the stir. Uh, Here's a new word. This is fun. I've never heard this before. Bardolatry, which is worshipping Shakespeare, basically. Uh, It was at its height at this time, and the bardolaters or bardolators... (laughs) (laughs) whatever I don't know Uh, they weren't happy to learn that she suggested that it was actually Francis Bacon among others who actually penned some of Shakespeare's works so uh, they got pissed off so here's the part where I said does this sound familiar Um, she had been likened to Hester Prynne or Prine I don't know how to pronounce that because they didn't actually read the book but that is the main character of the Scarlet Letter Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she's hooking up with some guy. Townspeople don't like it. She gets ostracized, moves to Ohio. She died on September 2nd, 1859, at the age of 48. All these young deaths. I know. But that's just pre-vaccinations and... Exactly, right? <laughs> Pre-cleanliness. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to also do the next one, and then the last one we'll do together. So the next one is Ida Barney. Ida was born on November 6th, 1886 in New Haven, Connecticut to parents Ida and Samuel Barney. So when did we stop naming daughters after mothers? I don't know. I don't even, yeah. I don't think I've ever met anyone in recent times who's 
been named after their mom. Her hobby growing up was watching birds and she became president of the New Haven Bird Club. In 1908, she earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from Smith College, which is a private women's liberal arts college. In 1911, she earned a PhD in mathematics from Yale. And after that, she taught math at Rollins College, which is a private liberal arts college in Florida. A year later, she moved back to Smith and she taught math there. She did move on to Lake Erie College in Ohio. She stayed there for two years from 1917 to 1919. And then she went back to Smith again to teach math in 1920. Just a lot of back and forth in here. Um, here's where things get exciting in 1922. She got a job at Yale University's observatory where she began her career in astronomy. She held a position of research assistant until 1949. She uh, worked under Frank Schlesinger. She plotted the position of stars. This is actually a direct quote here because this, this was a little bit too technical for me to reword. So she, quote, worked under Frank Schlesinger. She plotted the position of stars from photographic plates and worked on calculations of their celestial coordinates from their positions on the plates. The work was tedious, which Schlesinger thought to be suitable for women and capable of theoretical research, end quote. Boo earns. Mm -hmm. That's rude. <laughs> I know, right? This is, this is tedious. This is your job because you're just a girl. Yeah. But if she was like, not only can I do this, I can do it better. Go fuck yourself. She developed methods that increased the speed and accuracy to which measurements were taken. And she introduced a machine that centered the plates. And when Frank retired, she took over his job and made it easier and more efficient for her direct reports. So the job was to catalog the stars. And over time, this caused eye strain, which in turn affected the accuracy of the measurements taken. So she actually introduced a new machine to alleviate the eye strain, thus making the measurements much more precise, which ultimately led to more accurate catalogs. So since these catalogs were so awesome because of her, they're still used for teaching today. Cool. Yeah, there were 22 volumes with over 150,000 stars documented. She retired in 1955 and she died March 7th, 1982. Pretty recent? Mm -hmm. Ish. Yeah. Not quite. I would have been three, so that was 37 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but she was a badass, and I liked her story, so. Very cool. Yeah. It was, it's mostly prominent women in this episode. The whole list in the Wikipedia page of all of the people buried there, it was like all these super famous inventor dudes, and there was only four women, five yeah. women. So I did, I picked all the women and said, we'll do these because I don't think they get enough attention. Oh, Everybody yeah. knows who Eli Whitney is and Noah Webster. Yeah. They can read up on that. Totally. Yeah. But speaking of super famous dudes. We did put one in here. We did put one we in did. here. Yeah. It's yeah. you. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about Charles Goodyear. Uh pretty well-known name in today's day and age, which is kind of cool. And Charles Goodyear was born in December 29th, 1800, to Cynthia Bateman and Amasa Goodyear in New Haven, Connecticut. He was the first of six children. His father was one of the founders of the New Haven Colony. 
1823, Charles moved to Philadelphia to work in the hardware business. In 1824, he married Calissa, Clarissa Beecher, and together they had five children, Ellen, Cynthia, Charles Jr., Amelia, and Anne. In 1825, he returned to Connecticut, Connecticut to open a button factory. Now I have that button factory oh. song from camp in my head. Is that that? My name is So. My name is Joe. Oh, it's I, Joe. We, yeah. we said So. Oh, we yeah. Hello, my name is Joe. And I work I, in I a button. I have a wife, I have a job, I have a family. I work in a button factory. Yeah. I push one. this button. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, anyway. I have a different version in my head, but yeah, same song. Same song, same awesomeness. You get to do motions. And anyway, this button factory, with his, he opened it with his dad where they made metal and ivory buttons. A year later, he and his dad opened a hardware store and business boomed, but his health forced him to take a break from 1829 to 1830 as he was suffering from dyspepsia. Curious what that is. Uh, tummy trouble. Ew. Yeah, indigestion, belching. Um, that sounds like a good name of a medication. It's dyspepsia? Like, maybe that's where Pepto-Bismol came from. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Or maybe that's where Pepsi came from, because that just wrecks your stomach, too. Oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, around the same time, there were some business endeavors that were failing, causing an embarrassment to the firm. The business eventually failed. In 1831-1832, Charles learned everything he possibly could about gum elastic, a natural rubber. And he went to work experimenting with different formulas for it so it could be used in the manufacture of many different products. I sense a foreshadow here. Mm -hmm. He saw a problem with life preservers degrading, so he reformulated the rubber and made new and more durable rubber tires for the life, or rubber tubes, sorry, for the life preservers. He took them to a big manufacturing plant, the Roxbury Rubber Company in Boston, to show the manager what he could do. They were impressed and hired him to solve some of the problems they were having with some of their products. So he had to go back to Philadelphia for some reason, unknown, and when he got there, he was arrested and put in jail by one of his creditors from a past failed business venture. However, his incarceration ended up having a fortuitous upside. While there, he experimented with new rubber and he uh, was able to make some shoes with the help of his wife and children. Um, this new recipe though, downside, ended up with the same results as of his other experiments. The rubber became sticky. That didn't stop him from further research and development. He sold everything he owned, so he gets out of jail, and then he sells everything he owns, sends his wife and family to a boarding house, and he goes, he moves to New York into an attic, and decides to continue his work there. He finally perfected his concoction, but almost at the expense of his life due to long-term exposure to chemicals. So he then gets together with an old business partner and they set up a manufacturing plant and they made a bunch of stuff out of rubber. Things were looking up, but the panic of 1837 came along. And that is basically um, a one-year period where the economy just went to shit and it was like the dirty 30s but it was it just didn't concentrate it to a year and that ended up eating up all of his partner's funds and the factory dream was over he went back to boston to work with the roxbury rubber company again 
and uh, that horseshoe up his ass allowed him to work with more people, get more money for uh, his research and development. Things just kept going to shit and then getting better and then just back and forth it flip-flopped a lot for him. So definitely had a horseshoe helping him along. Um, they ended up producing rubber shoes. So luck runs out again. And that's because the goods that they made were eventually returned to the factory for becoming too sticky, just like the others. The trick was to make a rubber product that could withstand hot and cold temperatures without getting sticky. In 1839, while working with the Eagle India Rubber Company, he accidentally discovered something that vulcanized the rubber. Vulcanization is just a hardening of it. Mm -hmm. So um, that he did all of these experiments, went to jail, lose, lost his life savings, ate up other people's money, just all this stuff and experimenting, and then he accidentally came across the method that he was looking for all these years. Awesome. Um, but it worked out. He got a U.S. patent for it that same year. In 1852, he took a trip to England, and he discovered that somebody else claimed to have invented vulcanized rubber. So he and the other inventor guy, quote-unquote, uh, his name was Thomas Hancock. He received a British patent for it. A uh, legal battle ensued, and Charles lost. Oh, Bummer. No. Is that any relation to Hancock tires that are also a brand name of tire? I don't know. That's a good question. That's curious. That you know what? There curious. was no link on his name, this Thomas Hancock character on the oh, Wikipedia okay. page. You know how they have it like yeah. they'll have other pages? There was nothing on his. Yeah. And I didn't bother to look him up. Because I think the brand is Hancock Tires, but it is just it? seems so similar. Interesting. I well, think. they do change their names sometimes yeah. when they come to America. They switch things around. If one of your listeners could like Google that shit and <laughs> post a response or something or please a comment, do. please inform us if this dude is the inventor of Hancock, Hancock. Tires. Hancock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he lost. Uh, oh, and oh shit. Okay, things get worse. Oh jeez. <laughs> Oh, jeez. I know. That horseshoe fell right out. Um, in 1860, he took a trip to see his dying daughter, but she passed away before he arrived. Unfortunate. The news killed him. Oh, jeez. Literally. He died that day. Uh, that was July 1st, 1860, the day he left to go visit his daughter. The Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company was named for him, even though he never ran that company himself or worked there or anything. They named it after him. Through all of his misfortunes, he always had a positive outlook. He was quoted as saying, in reflecting upon the past as relates to these branches of industry, the writer is not disposed to repine and say that he has planted and others have gathered the fruits. The advantages of a career in life should not be estimated exclusively by the standard of dollars and cents, as is often done. Man has just cause for regret when he sows and no one reaps. Sounds smart. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, you had all this shitty luck. Everyone else gets the benefits, but that's okay. <laughs> and that was Charles Goodyear. And that is it. Fascinating stuff about that cemetery in Connecticut and all the interesting people in there. I'm so glad that you did this one with me because... There was nobody else 
because that whole Instagram post and the whole discussion topic and stuff, it just all tied in nicely. So I was like, oh no, if she doesn't do this one, then I'll never do this one. Totes my goats. I hope you invite me back again. This has been very interesting and fascinating. Oh, I will then. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Yay. Okay. Thanks for listening. Um, Thank you so much for tuning in to Beyond the Grave. Please feel free to support the show by telling a friend, giving a review, or just simply subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and links will be in the show notes. And if you have any suggestions for future topics, or if you have your own story you would like me to share, you can email me at beyondthegravepodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can also email me your scary ghost stories of, of you in a cemetery, if something creepy happened to you there, or you saw the infamous lady in white in your local cemetery. I want to hear all about it for a future episode I'm working on for Halloween. So please feel free to email me your stories at beyondthegravepodcast at gmail.com. And thank you uh, again to Martina Emmerd for hosting, co-hosting with me for episodes five and six. Very much appreciated. You can find her on Instagram. She is a roller skating disco diva. And her handle is uh, learn to roller skate YQL. You can also find tutorials on how to do her super awesome roller skating dance moves on her YouTube channel. So definitely check her out. Bye. Thank you.